Hey, deserving listeners, this is chapter three in my deep dive on dependent personality disorder. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, but I'm going to have a little intro here. Today's chapter, I'm going to talk about, I think it's going to be the final chapter, I'm going to talk about outcomes of dependent personality disorder, like what happens, like what relationship problems people have with it, that sort of thing, victimization of others, victimization by others. I'm going to talk about the history of the construct, um, kind of in brief, kind of kind of not, and I'm going to talk about the treatment. But first, I want to give you the third example, the fictional composite of a fictional person I'm naming Tammy. So Tammy is our third uh, case example. We talked about Aiden in Chapter 1. We talked about Michelle in Chapter 2 talked about Tammy in chapter three. And as I always say, these examples are completely fictionalized. They're cobbled together from probably, you know, I don't know, 30 to 50 people that I can reference. And any one of those people would not recognize themselves in this description. All right. So Tammy, she was terribly traumatized as a child. So with Aiden and Michelle, we didn't see tremendous abuse, but with Tammy, we see lots and lots of abuse, lots of chaos. As a teen, she mostly kept to herself. She saw herself as a loser, and she was very envious of other kids. She had terribly low self-esteem. She had complex PTSD. She sometimes thought about suicide. Every day, at some point, an invasive thought would invade her brain that she was worthless and no one would ever love her. She tried hard in school, though. Other students saw her as the teacher's pet. She would stay after school and talk with the teachers, and she did whatever they asked her to do. She felt safe with the teachers, much more so than she did with her peers. As an adult, she struggled in relationships. She often found herself with abusive partners, and she would stay way too long in those relationships. When friends told her to leave, she she said she would leave, but she only said that to please them, and she knew she would actually never leave. She still thought about suicide as an adult. She saw herself as a burden to everyone. She thought the world would be better off without, without her. She sometimes fantasized about people missing her after she died. At work, though, she finally found where she could shine. At work, she knew what was required of her. If she did a good job, she was rewarded. There was a structure at work. So she poured all of her hopes and dreams into the job. Soon, she was considered to be the hardest worker at the company. Everyone loved her. She was nice to everyone. In fact, she was really, really, really nice to everyone. She often spoke in ways that emphasized her rank in relation to her bosses. She excessively mentioned that she was an underling to her bosses frequently in ways that really no one else did. She excessively showered her bosses with praise. When given the chance, she would publicly praise her bosses. Some of her bosses were annoyed with this behavior, but they said nothing. Other bosses liked it. She was extremely pessimistic about the future. She assumed the worst would happen in all situations. She often talked about how the company was going to go bankrupt and go out of business. Other coworkers did not see the world this way, but they said nothing because she was so, so nice. She often seemed anxious and overworked by her coworkers. Her, co- her coworkers thought, wow, she's so anxious and she's so overworked. 
She was never at ease or calm. She was always on the go and stressed out. At times, she even liked being seen as someone who burnt the candle at both ends. It showed how hard she worked. She liked being seen that way. It helped to make her feel safe. She was extremely preoccupied with what her coworkers thought of her, particularly her bosses. She needed contact with her coworkers, but particularly her bosses, practically every day. She would email, text, call, etc. with her bosses all day long, multiple times. She was eager to please. With some bosses, they accommodated her and talked with her every day. But other bosses disliked how needy she was. However, under all of that eager compliance and subservience, she had tremendous rage. She had a lifetime of anger that had rarely ever been expressed. Deep down, she resented everyone she served. She resented everyone she worked with. She resented everyone she had ever been involved with. And she only occasionally even felt this anger consciously. But she would express this anger through hidden ways, sometimes hidden even to her. For example, she would defy her bosses while verbally praising them. In her conscious mind, she thought her bosses were great, but unconsciously, she hated them like a, with a passion. She would subtly undermine her bosses and, and her coworkers. For example, she would subtly insult people behind their backs in a way that, if you heard it, you might not even recognize it as an insult, but it was definitely an insult. It was a passive insult. She would secretly sabotage her bosses. For example, she would fail to follow through on tasks that she was ordered to do or given. But since she was so nice, quote unquote, everyone figured it was just because she was overworked. But in fact, she was not overworked. She purposely would fail the task as a way of expressing her vast amount of, of anger and resentment. Anger at her bosses, anger at her coworkers, anger at her past relationships, and anger at the world. When one of her bosses would not allow her to enmesh with them, she turned on the boss. She became openly rageful and even mildly delusional with the boss. She falsely accused her boss of several transgressions that were not true, that were mildly delusional, and she believed these transgressions were true because of her distorted lens due to her trauma, and due to the way it felt. There, her deep sea of anger was uh, distorting her, the way that she saw the world and was causing her to believe things that actually did not happen. After the blow-up, she would return. This would happen regularly. She would return to a regular state of being super nice and eagerly compliant, even with the person that she would rage at. And it was very confusing to people, but they just figured, oh, she's just stressed out. Because she was so nice all the time, and people had a narrative that she was the nicest person on the planet. She mostly avoided romantic relationships. She was married a number of times. All of her husbands had relational traumas and were verbally abusive to her. She had a number of children. She had a complicated relationship with her children. On one hand, she was the perfect mother. She was nice, accommodating, would praise them all the time. But she would quickly turn on them at times, and she knew exactly how to make her children feel worthless and small. The children were very confused by this presentation. Her children eventually grew up and moved far away. They knew it was better that way. All right. So that is the end of that uh, case example. It's pretty different from Michelle and pretty different from Aiden. 
Remember with Aiden, he was much more of an of an enmeshed type and a, and a childlike type with his mother and his wife. And Michelle was more childlike, life avoidant, enmeshed, and a little bit passive aggressive. With Tammy, we are looking at someone who shares two of the main uh, of the of the main six types. One is the compliant and eager dependent. It's pretty clear in my description in that Tammy adopted the submissive role very well. She's gracious, eager, compliant, accommodating, agreeable, can even be histrionic or over the top with her agreeableness, over the top compliance, and of course, suppress deep feelings of anger and disapproval. And then the second type that she exhibits is the passive aggressive dependent, very dependent, over, overtly nice, low self-esteem, attracted to strong people, struggling between dependence and independence, compliant but secretly rageful, quietly stubborn, and hidden hostility. So that is my third and probably my final case presentation. I have another one, but I, I, there's a lot of overlap with the other one, so I might get into it. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about the outcomes, mainly uh, three different areas. The way to, the, you know, when you have dependent personality disorder, how does, how does it affect your relationships? How does it affect your likelihood of being victimized by others? And actually how it leads to you victimizing others. People with dependent personality disorder, according to research, and I'll go over it, are absolutely capable of victimizing other people. I'm going to talk about some other things as well, but I'm also going to talk about the history. I'm going to go back to the first writers, psychoanalytic or object relations people through the various DSMs, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to talk about treatment of it. This is the Psychology Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode, if you're not a patron of the podcast, is going to end before the content begins. So if you want to hear this full episode, you have to become a patron by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of this podcast, and you'll hear this episode, along with hundreds of others of our best episodes. We've made over a 1,000 episodes, and I don't know, 300 or so of those are our best episodes, and they're only available to patrons. So if you want to hear this and those episodes, go to patreon.com, become a patron, do it now if you want. (laughs) And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. All right, let's talk about outcomes. So the first thing I want to talk about are positive outcomes because having dependent personality disorder, as with any of the personality disorders, there can be some positive associations. So let's get that out of the way here first. The positive outcomes can be emotionally perceptive of others, which makes sense, right? Because the dependent person depends on being able to read their caretakers. And so they spend a lot of neurons and time and energy learning how to perceive the emotions and the thoughts of other people because they want to manage um, the other their caretakers so that they can get the most out of their caretakers. This is similar to borderline and to preoccupied attachment. But that skill can really help in your ability to empathize, your ability to pick up on other people's feelings. You know, it's, it's a good skill. Another is, and this is well shown by the data, is that people with dependent personality disorder will seek help fast and effectively. So these people are very quick to reach out for medical help, for professional help. You know, they're very fast at 
reaching out and they're very good at saying, I need help, right? Because that's their primary mode it existing in the world is getting help from their superiors, from their caretakers. And sometimes that's a, that's a skill, that's a pro, right? They also tend to be very easy clients to work with. And this is one of the reasons why I think we don't hear about this disorder very often is because therapists, you know, when it comes to people with borderline, on average, there's more uh, issues with people with borderline because they can be triggered with their abandonment trauma. They can be very hurt and they can be sometimes hostile with their therapist. Hashtag not all borderline people, of course. But those hostile moments at least are perceived by my field as at least in part being caused by borderline personality disorder. And thus, I think it causes us to be kind of laser focused on on the topic of borderline, even though a lot of clinicians don't really understand it or will stigmatize it. But when it comes to clients who are very nice and get along with you and do everything that you say, it doesn't really cause alarm in therapists, right? It might even cause therapists to feel like we're awesome therapists. People with dependent personality disorder will tend to make you feel that way. And thus, there isn't an alarm or a, a, a sudden need to study it or talk about it. But just because a client is extremely compliant and seemingly very easy does not necessarily mean that therapy is going well, which I'll get into later in the treatment section and the countertransference transference issue. Also, people with dependent personality disorder can be very helpful or even people on the spectrum, right? They can be very nice and very agreeable and very accommodating, which can be a skill, right? Not only just a skill at work, but also just nice in a relationship that someone really cares, they're paying attention, they're easygoing, they're agreeable, they'll, they'll go along with what you want. That can be a good thing. If it goes too far, it can be a, become a bad thing. They work well with mentors and superiors. So that's another plus. So in a university setting, they might be really good at getting care from a professor and being a good mentee. It also can enhance one's parenting. As a parent with dependency, you might be very easygoing and very helpful to your children. Again, if it goes too far, it can be bad. But those are good skills. So these are really undeniable. And everyone that I've met and worked with who suffers from some level of dependency will have some combination of this. For example, with Aiden, in my example given in Chapter 1, that composite person is a very nice, accommodating person, unless things turn stressful. With Michelle, the childlike one who was enmeshed with the mother, she was very pleasant and very nice, good sense of humor, lots of people liked her. With Tammy, in the presentation I gave earlier, again, very nice, good worker, you know, those are good skills to have. All right, so let's talk about the negative side of the outcomes that can happen from dependency. So let's talk about relationship issues. And this is actually not often discussed in the literature. I, I could speculate as to why, but they usually talk about the other things that I'm going to get into. So there's not a lot of research on this, maybe because it's harder to research. But anyway, the main issue here with relationships, and this is more from my own observation working with clients, is that basically what people on the dependency spectrum are looking for in a romantic relationship is a parent rather than a partner. They don't know they're looking for a parent consciously, but that's what they're looking for. They're not really looking for an equal partner. 
they're looking for a parent or like an older sibling or something. And of course, this leads to inherent distance because romance, peer to peer equality, you're closer, but you're not as close to someone who is above you, you know, a superior over you. And you're not, you don't approach those people in the same way. It's kind of a one-way relationship, which which can be very dissatisfying for both people, unsatisfying for both people. There's under-functioning, over-functioning. So the, the dependent person will tend to under-function, not only in tasks, but in emotional life between the two of them. There can be requirements from the dependent person that the that their romantic partner caretakes for them in a way that pressures the partner to take care of things when the partner doesn't want to take care of things all the time. And there can be impaired empathy in the same way that children don't have the same sort of empathy that they would have normally, you know, children don't have, children have empathy for their parents. They love their parents dear, dearly you, in, in good situations, but because they're children, they don't, they don't really yet understand what their parents are going through. And we want children to, feel that way because we want them to focus more on themselves so they can develop. But people with dependency will retain that into their adulthood. And when they are close to someone, they tend to treat everyone that's close to them as if they're superior, even even a close friend. They will tend to treat their people because that's how they know how to love, right? The way they know how to love is to be inferior, is to be taken care of. And it's a one-way relationship, and thus there's not a lot of empathy that is going to come from the uh, from the dependent person, which can be very very confusing to other people because usually we equate niceness with empathy, right? If someone's very accommodating and nice and agreeable, the heuristic is they have empathy for me. That's why they're so nice to me. They're so nice to me because they care about me. But that is not a good heuristic in this scenario. The person is just being nice to you because they want you to take care of them and they're terrified of you in some ways. And so they're not actually uh, you know, being nice to you because they, they want you to feel better. They want, they're being nice to you because they want you to take care of them. It's a much different motivation and it can be very, very confusing to partners. If you've ever been in a romantic relationship with someone with this disorder, it can be very confusing because on one level, you'll feel like you're, uh, you have the nicest partner in the world. But on the other hand, you'll be in this constant state of feeling like you're being hurt and that you're being rejected and, you're, and that you're not getting your needs met. But it doesn't make any sense because your partner is the nicest person in the world. Everyone sees your partner as a nice. Why? And then you end up blaming yourself. You think, well, it must be something wrong with me. So possible outcomes from dependency in relationships are the following. A parent-child dynamic can develop, which of course is neither person getting fulfilled romantically or relationally, and it's never really intimate and can become exaggerated over time. It's a frequent thing, a parent-child dynamic, over-function or under-function. Another dynamic that can develop is the abuser-abuse dynamic, which, of course, is awful. I've talked about this a little bit in the chapters, is that abusive people can sometimes sniff out a dependent person as a very easy victim. And this can also become exaggerated over time, which, of course, is awful. The third possible outcome in relationships is that the dependent person will push people away from them because as the other partner tries to reach for 
the dependent person, the dependent person feels like a ghost because they're not really there. They don't have their own passions, their own opinions, their own ambitions. And this will push people away because they they want to be with someone who's really there, if that makes any sense. Also, they, they sometimes will push people away because the dependent person is always trying to mold their romantic partner into a parent. And if the other person is more healthy or doesn't have those kinds of matching interjects, then they will resist that that pushing. You know, they'll say, I don't like you treating me like I'm your mother or your father. I don't want to be treated that way. Stop it. And and But the continuation of that subtle pushing into the caretaking role, the partner will sometimes run for the hills. Number four is some people with dependency will avoid relationships altogether and become very lonely. Some, uh, number five, is they will, dis- they will stay dependent on their parent. They'll never leave their parent. They'll just stay at home or, you know, just stay enmeshed with their parent. And this is a lose-lose for both child, adult child and parent. Six is they can become very clingy, which, of course, can be very bothersome to people. It's hard to deal with someone who's clingy, just feel trapped and claustrophobic. Number seven is repressed anger, as I was talking about before, resentment, passive aggression. And number eight is some will actually overcompensate by becoming dominant and abusive themselves at times. People with dependency can become abusive for sure, which I'll get into later. There's research on that. Okay, another negative outcome from dependent personality disorder is low life satisfaction. Just a general bummer of a life, right? The person has a lack of connection to the self. They don't know what they want. They don't know what they need. They don't know how to meet their needs, even if they knew them. They don't know their emotions. So that's going to be hard to uh, you know, live a good life because if you don't know what you need, you don't know how you feel, then you don't know how to meet your needs. And the way I see it, you know, the, the saying is a broken clock is right two times a day. Well, the same is true about people who lack a connection with the self, is that very occasionally they will just randomly meet one of their needs and they'll say, hey, I'm meeting a need right now. But that's because it's kind of random. It's much better if you actually can fix the clock and it can be actually accurate most of the time, meaning that you actually get in connection with yourself and actually know your needs and can in the moment adjust so you can meet your needs and and help other people at the same time. Also, playing it safe by staying close to caregivers, whether it's a parent or a partner or a boss that's dominant over you. This means that you never take any risks. You never spread your wings. So that can be a very low life satisfaction as well. Often, also, people with dependency are anxious, depressed, and demoralized, sometimes suicidal, which, of course, can lower one's life satisfaction. So people with dependent personality disorder are suffering, and I hope that that's clear. They might not be overtly talking about their suffering, but they might be suffering a lot. And that's another one of the deceptions that I think leads to therapists not really focusing on dependent personality disorder. People with borderline, people with histrionic will be very um, overt about their suffering, which is a good thing. That's one of the strengths of people with borderline and histrionic is that they're actually able to express, hey, I'm suffering right now. It's, you know, it's a strength. But people with dependency, they tend to not do that. One, they don't really know they're suffering on some level. Two, they're, they're so desperate to please that they don't want to push you away. So there's that. Okay. So another uh, uh, negative outcome that I've been alluding to is victimization by others. So let's look at some of the research here. 
Bornstein et al., uh, 2029, uh, 2009, they found a significant association be de- between dependency and abuse, physical, sexual, and emotional. So if you have dependency, even if you're lower from the threshold of, of dependent personality disorder, you're much more likely to have experienced or experience in the future physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. So that the data shows that. Uh, Los et al. 2011 found a association, an association between dependent personality disorder and a risk for being physically abused. So multiple studies finding that dependency is associated with being abused. And this makes sense. People with dependent personality disorder are looking for a quote unquote strong person to depend on. This can attract a person prone to abusing others. Also, if those with dependency date a non-abusive person, sometimes they will feel unattracted to that person, bored with that person, or even uncomfortable with the distance and what they perceive as distance and what they perceive as a lack of energy. They might actually perceive dominant uh, or sort of proto-abuse as love. You know, oh my God, he's, he's just so into me. He's, he gets so jealous. That means he really loves me, that kind of thing. When the abusive person increases their abusive behavior, the person with dependent personality disorder will increase their dependency to appease the abuser. And then we have a uh, sort of a vicious cycle that happens where the abusive person increases their dominance and abuse and control, and the person with dependency will increase their submissiveness and lack of checking in with what they want. This is a way of gaining safety for them. They learned from a very early time in their life that in order to gain safety, they had to become submissive. They had to give in to other people. They had to put themselves on the back burner. And as someone becomes abusive, it just you know taps right into that coping style and they become even more submissive, which of course satisfies the abusive person. But the abusive person feels like, oh, well, now I can get away with even more. And so they do. And then the, the submissive person becomes more submissive. Also, through the submissiveness will come distance, which will trigger the abusive person because a lot of abusers are actually in a very, very dysfunctional way trying to find contact and intimacy and closeness through the abuse. Again, it doesn't make any sense, but it, but that can be a motivation unconsciously. And as the abusive person becomes abusive, they are naturally pushing the dependent person away emotionally. And this causes anxiety in the abusive person, and thus they become more abusive, which, again, pushes the dependent person more away. And then, you know, it's sort of off to the races in terms of the vicious cycle. This is not to say that the victim is to blame for the abuse. It's always the victimizer's fault, but it does illuminate the pattern. Also, bullying is another factor. I've seen a lot of people with dependency get bullied at school and at work. Uh, much more often bullied than other than people without dependent personality disorder. Anecdotally, uh, and it's not often talked talked about, but I've seen it uh, because you know what I was saying earlier is that victimizers detect that they're easy targets, and also their submissive behavior can annoy others. Like when you're ten years old and you're the teacher's pet, and you don't assert yourself, then you you can you can annoy even kids who aren't prone to abusing others. You know. Also, this gives them an excuse to evoke caregiving from the caregiver. If they're bullied and they run back home to their parents and they report that they're being bullied, then the parents might even pull them out of school and homeschool them, which ultimately might be what the dependent person wants. 
Okay, so let's talk about suicide. And by the way, if you are thinking about suicide or anyone else, make sure you talk with your therapist. Make sure you recommend people talk to their therapist. Also, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. You can Google that. Anyone can talk to them 24-7. Make sure that you, you get safe. So dependent personality disorder is associated with suicide ideation and attempts and completions. Research, Bornstein and O'Neill, the year 2000, found that dependency is associated with past suicidal behavior and physician ratings of current suicidality. Perry and Corner in 2011 found that dependent personality disorder is associated with a significant increase in the number of suicide attempts. And this makes sense because people with dependency have deep feelings of incompetence, low self-esteem, lack connections with their own needs. They have suppressed anger that can be turned against the self. They have low frustration tolerance. They can sometimes be impulsive. And for a small percentage, they will use these suicidal gestures as a way to gain attention from the caretaker, signaling that they need help and cannot function alone. Now, even there's this whole discussion in the treatment uh, realm around parasuicide or suicidal gestures and serious suicidal discussions, and all uh, suicidal uh, discussions need to be taken very seriously, and I always do, and I always have my supervisees take them very seriously as well. So just because we might frame it as, I'm not sure they're really serious about it, you need to take it seriously because it's literally a life or death matter. All right, let's talk about dependency and illness. There's a significant link between dependency and illness risk. So people with dependent personality disorder are much more likely to become sick or you know some other, some other kind of somatic issue, particularly if the person with dependent personality disorder is stressed out about a relationship, which of course makes sense, right? When you are dependent, when you have dependent personality disorder, you need your caretaker to take care of you. And if there is a threat there between you and your caretaker, then you become very, you feel very unsafe, and thus you be you become very stressed, and then you will suffer from illness because stress causes a lot of illness. Also, you have an unconscious motivation to have psychogenic illness as a way of sucking the caretaker back into your life. Of course, this is all unconscious. You don't know what's happening. So when studying this, though, it's hard to know what causes which because dependency is a risk factor for certain physical and psychological disorders. And uh, dependent personality disorder can be a consequence of being ill. So if you have dependency you're more likely to become ill because of the stress and maybe because of the unconscious need to suck in caretaking. And if you are ill and you have a disability, you're more likely to become dependent as what I was talking about in chapter two and the causes that when you are, uh, you know, say you're on the, you're kind of, you have, you have dependency leanings and then boom, you become blind well, now you, you're demoralized, you give up on life, and you really you know, double down on your dependency needs, and you cross the threshold into dependent personality disorder. So uh, we see a lot of people with dependent personality disorder have physical illnesses, but did the dependency cause the stress which causes the illness, or did, you know, did dependency cause the unconscious need to be ill, to suck in caretaking, or 
did they have the illness uh, independent of that and did it exacerbate or even cause their dependency? I hope that makes sense. But research shows that many treatment systems, you know, hospitals, nursing homes, they will actually inadvertently reinforce dependent behavior. Remember in chapter two when I was talking about the behaviorism perspective where the belief is is that dependent people are rewarded for their dependent behavior. And the research has looked into it and, you know, hospitals, nursing homes, these places will uh, because they're there to caretake, you know, the nurses, the doctors, it's their job to caretake for the dependent person. But sometimes this can cause the dependent person to become even more dependent and even more sick because as they reach out for care and you reward them by by immediately taking care of them and, and you know, increasing your your care of them, they can feel even less uh, capable in the world. Because remember, it's incompetence that is often driving this. And so they can feel uh, more incompetent, more in need of being taken care of, more helpless, and maybe even kind of basking in all the attention that they always wanted to get. And so sometimes when you're working with people like this, and I'll talk about this later, you have to strategize about that. You don't want to deny care, but you want to Somehow, like in a hospital for or a nursing home, you, of course, would want to attend to the patient's medical needs. But maybe you want to uh, introduce some activities where they can feel competent and on their own, where they can do things on their own so that there's some balance there, if that makes sense. Okay. Also, healthcare utilization. People with dependency are much more likely to use healthcare and much more often. The research, just some of the research here, Poor Sorelli et al. 2009 found that dependent people use healthcare services a lot more often and they incur higher healthcare costs. O'Neill and Bornstein 2001 found that dependency is associated with increases in medication prescriptions and medical consultations, which of course makes total sense. When you are dependent, you really, really crave care. So one, you're going to, for no reason other than you just want care, you're going to go to the doctor and you're going to follow their orders much more often, right? And when you are sick, you're much quicker to go to the doctor, right? Okay. So I've already talked about how people with dependency are more at risk of being victimized by others, but... People with dependent personality disorder are also more likely to victimize others. Not all of them, but they are at higher risk of this behavior. Dependent personality disorder is often characterized as being very passive and submissive, right? But study shows that when people with dependency are threatened with abandonment, dependent people can sometimes behave in active and even violent and abusive ways. For example, Emory and Lesher in 1982 study found that dependent clients have have more fake emergencies and requests for between session contact. So this is very active, right? The the person with dependency is demanding more, you know, in between uh, session contact. It's not violent, but it you know it's just it's more active, more assertive. Bornstein and O'Neill 2000 study found that dependent clients have higher rates of parasuicide when threatened with abandonment by their therapist. Again, that's more active. It's not passive. Bornstein Kennedy, 1994, found that people with dependency, dependent personality disorder, actively seek help from professors and advisors to maximize academic performance. 
So this is in line with what I was talking about before. It's, it's actually kind of a strength, right? That people with dependency will reach out to mentors. And so it's, you know, it's, it's not all passive and, and submissiveness for people with dependency. When dependent people feel as though they need to get assertive to retain their caregiver, they will become assertive. So a study by Bornstein et al. 1987 is kind of an interesting uh, lab test on this. So they set up debates where dependent people were debating with a random person. So they had, so they had a dependent person debating with a random person. The researcher asked the dependent person, I would like you to win the debate. The caretaker, the, the caregiver, the, you know, the, the researcher asked the dependent person to be assertive. During, during the debate, the dependent person was assertive and not passive. After the debate, they, the researchers asked the dependent person, why were you so assertive in that debate? And they said the main reason for this assertiveness was that the dependent students wanted to impress the researcher. So when a caretaker of a dependent person says, I want you to be assertive, then they are capable of being assertive. It's not that they're incapable of it. It's just that it's not normal for them to need it or to, to crave it. But if, if, it, if it means losing a caretaker or gaining caretaking from others, you know, if, if, if to, to gain uh, caretaking, if they have to be assertive or even violent, they will resort to that. Also, violence towards others, let's get into more severe situations. Dependency is associated with higher levels of jealousy higher levels of possessiveness, and higher levels of insecurity. And this makes sense, right? Dependent people, they really, really need their caretakers. Not all of them, but they can be very clingy and become very jealous and very possessive. And we all know what that can lead to, right? Which is, according to research, Murphy et al. found that dependency leads to an increased risk of being a intimate partner violence perpetrator. So dependency, according to research, some research, and not everyone. So, and that's the point. It's like when you have an increased risk, that doesn't mean that people with dependent personality disorder are all to be all abusive, right? It just means that if you have dependency, you're more likely to be an abusive person than if you don't have dependency, right? Uh, Kane and Bornstein, 2016, the re, their results revealed a significant relationship between dependency and the perpetration of intimate partner violence for men with dependency. Garcano, Snyder, and Bridges 2004 study found that nonviolent pedophiles, so pedophiles who were, who were not violent at, in their crimes, had significantly higher dependency scores. So nonviolent pedophiles would be grooming pedophiles, right? So they had significantly higher dependency scores. They didn't necessarily suffer from dependent personality disorder, but they were on the spectrum at least. Sexual homicide per- perpetrators had significantly higher dependency scores. And all this suggests that high levels of dependency may play a role in pedophilia and sexual homicide. So again, this does not mean that if you have dependency, you're a pedophile. It just means that for some pedophiles and for some people who commit heinous crimes, dependency might be might play a role in that. Remember that for the dependent person, they really, really need, they're terrified when they don't have a caretaker taking care of them. And in rare cases, that can result in the dependent person going to extreme lengths to punish others when they, re- when they refuse to take care of them, right? So this is my speculation about all this. 
When a dependent individual is worried about abandonment, they sometimes will resort to control or violence out of desperation. It's also probably a result of a lifetime of suppressed anger. Remember how I talked about that. Also, people with dependent personality disorder tend to be more immature, which leads to uh, more proto-morality of understanding, more impulse problems, you know, and a lack of adult empathy. So I think you add all that up and you have an increased risk of being abusive and also of heinous crimes. Now, again, we're talking about a very small percentage of those people with dependent personality disorder, but it is interesting, right? And I think more commonly, more typically, and I've seen this before in clients that I've worked with, is that just because you come across a super nice, like with Tammy that I talked about, the example of Tammy, she was considered by others to be the nicest person that they had ever met, literally. But underneath it all, she was raging with anger and she would abuse others. I mean, I didn't say that in the case, but you know, this person could be abusive. This person could absolutely harm others. You know, when she would explode with anger, it was it would be absolutely possible for this fictional composite person to become abusive towards others, even her own kids. Remember, I talked about how she knew exactly how to cut her children down when she wanted to. And so, and the reasons for this, I think, are lack of adult empathy, a lifetime of suppressed anger, and desperation when they feel as though their, uh, you know, insecu- their security is being threatened, right? Also, child abuse. Bornstein 2005 study did a meta-analysis that showed that dependent parents were significantly more likely than non-dependent parents to perpetrate abuse on their children. Sexual abuse as well. Dependency can result in social skill deficits, not all of them. So remember that when I was talking about with like Aiden and and uh, Michelle from chapter one to chapter two, Aiden and Michelle were both childlike. And so this can uh, have a have a effect of lack of social skills because they prefer to be seen as a child. And so they resist developing social skills. And they're also very, very keen on retaining care from their caretakers and developing social skills is actually a sign of gaining independence. And so sometimes not all in certain types of dependency, they can be very childlike and lack social skills, which can result in the person with dependent personality sort of feeling more comfortable with younger people, which can result in them feeling more sexually compatible with a minor, which can result in sexual abuse of a minor. Uh, so in other words, you can have, say, a 35-year-old woman who on the inside, because of her dependency, feels like a 10-year-old and might feel com- more comfortable around 10-year-olds. And when you want to be intimate romantically and sexually, you want to be with people that you feel the most comfortable with, and it might be someone that is of a similar age as you. And this can happen. This can be a cause of sexual abuse. Now, I suspect case-by-case basis, this would have to be uh, coinciding with some level of psychopathy, some level of lack of care or callousness about other people's feelings. And again, the vast majority of people with dependent personality disorder are not sexually abusive, but I think that dependency should be considered as one of the factors that can lead to child abuse, sexual abuse, and intimate partner violence, because that's what the data shows. 
Okay, now let's talk about the history of the construct of dependent personality disorder and dependency in general. The very first writers in our field to write about dependency, at least in kind, was Emil Kraepelin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. 1913, so over 100 years ago, German psychiatrist, considered to be the founder of modern psychiatry and psychopharmacology. And Kurt Schneider in 1923, a German psychiatrist. And there were others, but mainly Emil Kraepelin and Kurt Schneider. So we're looking at people in the 1910s, 1920s, just a few people in psychiatry. They wrote about what would eventually become dependent personality disorder. They wrote that dependent people were immature, gullible, easily exploited by others, lacking ambition, and quote-unquote weak-willed, as, you know, translated from German. So... You know, they were kind of getting at it, but not as sophisticated as we would later. Okay, now let's go to psychoanalysis. Uh, In 1905, which is actually before the psychiatrist, Freud wrote about how some people feel helpless and insecure. So you could say that Freud was the very first person to write about it. He wrote about how some people feel helpless and insecure, and he saw them as having an oral fixation or an oral dependency. You might have actually heard this phrase before, even if you're a lay person, that people can you know, have an oral fixation. Usually people refer to this when they're saying, oh, someone really likes to smoke cigarettes and they have an oral fixation. And that actually is part of it, but not entirely. Essentially, with Freud's psychosexual stages, there are various different stages, and the first phase is the oral phase. I believe it was the first phase. It's in the first months of life. life. Essentially, what Freud thought was that when children enter the world, they relate primarily through suckling, right, Uh, the mother's breast, and their satisfaction, their nurturance, their attunement is all uh, met, their their need for satiation, their need for uh, satisfaction physically is all met through the mouth. And you'll see infants will instantly put their, their hands in their mouth, they'll put things in their mouth, you know, because the mouth has a lot of nerves in it. And so it's very adept at sort of exploring the world, which makes a lot of sense because in the first few months of life, really, that's all you need the baby to do is is to eat <laughs> and to grow. So what Freud thought was that if you manage that phase well, and if the parenting situation is, uh, uh, you know, is functional enough, healthy enough for the child, um, and the child manages the, uh, you know, so let me, so it's kind of complicated, but um, so essentially in that phase, what Freud thought, which we don't really believe anymore, there's a. There's a, a test, a task uh, that the individual has to manage, the, the, the dialectic between dependency and autonomy. Now, we don't see three-month-old children as struggling with the balance between dependency and autonomy because it's too young to be even thinking about autonomy at that point. But that's the way Freud saw it. And we can laugh at him, but we have to realize that he had literally no research to base his opinions on. He had to completely just make stuff up on his own, and some of the stuff actually holds uh, you know, to today, and some of it doesn't. But the idea that children can have frustration of needs early in life that can affect them later is absolutely true. That could result in dependency. He just didn't have 
the details right. But the general idea was revolutionary. The general idea that your adult personality as an as a overly dependent person and as a, a person who struggles with independence could be a result of early childhood was actually completely revolutionary, something that we take today for granted. Of course, if someone has a personality problem as an adult, of course it you know stems from the way you were raised. Well, that was completely revolutionary for the time and for many, many decades, and Freud really you know, kind of set the stage for that. But anyway, um, so he had that wrong about the oral fixation, but essentially what he thought was that if you – uh, as an infant, have a frustration of needs or an overgratification of your oral needs, then it results in an oral fixation, meaning that forevermore, until you go through psychoanalysis, you will be dependent because you'll you're you're too dependent. You you have a hard time with autonomy, and you also will have oral fixations like smoking cigarettes or being preoccupied with your mouth or relying on food as a strategy for anxiety. So let's look at the research. Well, the research many decades later when we had money to actually do so, we found that there was a lack of association between dependency and you know very early childhood of the weaning experiences. So it seems that the oral fixation and the oral stage doesn't really hold up to the data. But there is some there are some studies that found that dependency is associated with eating disorders and smoking. Now, you could say that that's because general trauma can result in both dependency and eating disorders, and anxiety can lead to both dependency and smoking, because a lot of people who smoke have anxiety. So is it an oral fixation? Yeah, I don't know a lot of people that really hold that to be true. But the notion that early childhood experiences can result in dependency later on was continued to be explored by other psychoanalysts, Carl Abraham in the 1920s, Otto Fenichel, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name, in the 40s, Harry Stack Sullivan, 1953. You might have heard me talking about him during the interpersonal episode, and others. These, op- these authors, Abraham, Fenichel, and Sullivan, all, all, sh- all helped to shape the contemporary thinking regarding dependent personality disorders. So you took Freud's ideas – they took early psychiatry ideas and they, you know, observed more people, gave it more more thought. And Abraham, in 1927, developed what ultimately turned out to be the core component of pathological dependency. He hypothesized that it's due to a personal schema. He didn't use these words, but a personal schema in that the person believes that they are weak and vulnerable. And that's certainly true, right? Also that the person develops in relation to that schema a coping strategy of appeasing caregivers to get prote- protection and support. So, you know, it's interesting that for almost 100 years uh, since Abraham first discussed this, Carl Abraham, we have known about de- dependency and its and and where it comes from essentially for over 100 years, almost 100 years and yet Hardly anyone really understands this idea. This, this is one of the things that kind of drives me nuts about my field, that very fundamental things about personality and about personality disorders are just like ignored or underemphasized or forgotten about. And I'm continually amazed that people in the 1920s, 1930s, 1910s, Ferenczi, Harry Stack Sullivan, Freud, Abraham, Karen Horney, these people 
had brilliant things to say that are still kind of revolutionary today because we just failed to, I don't know, like remind ourselves of these, I don't know, these things. Anyway, just kind of, because if you're a clinician, think about how often you even heard someone even bring up dependent personality disorder or where it comes from. You know, so many clinicians will just jump on the cultural bandwagon of saying that person just needs to grow up instead of realizing it's, you know, it's a condition and it stems from relational traumas and deep schemas that really need to, have, you know, be taken care of in, in long-term therapy with long-term corrective experiences, which I'll get into later. Anyway, so eventually Freud changed his theory, revised his theory in the 1930s. He shifted away from drives and, and somewhat away from the psychosexual stages and the oral fixation. And he started recognizing what a lot of people in the field were recognizing at the time, object relations people included, about early relationships are important. So originally it was all about drives and about how the child navigates the breast, if you will. And then later he wrote in 1938, a child suckling at his mother's breast becomes the prototype of every relation of love. So it's a little exaggeratory in a certain way, but what he was saying, which was a lot of people were saying at the time, was, wait, wait, wait. It's not about inner drives as much as it is about the quality of the relationship early in life. So Freud certainly began to recognize that. And this helped set the stage, along with others, for attachment theory, other relational theories, object relations um, as well. I mean, object relations was already uh, in the works, but it certainly helped it. Harry Stack Sullivan in 1953, American psychologist, he wrote that dependent people have been obedient children of a dominating parent. They go through life needing a strong person to make decisions for them. They learned their helplessness and clinging will keep them close to their caregiver's protection. So right there, and I paraphrase a little bit, Harry Stack Sullivan, 1953, described basically, it sounds like he basically, so if he heard me giving this lecture right now, he'd be like, yep, uh-huh, yep, we, we all knew this in 1953. Why is this guy talking about this? You know, is is how come in 2021, shouldn't you already no, we, we knew about this in 1953. How come it's how come he's doing this deep dive on it? And well, it's because we just don't talk about it that much. It's kind of weird. Anyway, later research would show that Harry Stack Sullivan's perceptions were correct in that research has found that dominant parenting does seem to be a major factor in developing dependent personality disorder. All right, object relations. So these folks broke from Freud's drives and put early relationships at the center of their theory. They believe that our early relationships become internalized, and this forms our concept of self and other and of relationships in general. Number one idea here is that dependent personality disorder results in the internalization of a mental representation of the self as weak and vulnerable and of the other as being dominant and strong and safe. And this internalization results in looking to others to provide protection, being preoccupied with fears of abandonment, constantly constantly seeking help, especially toward potential caregivers, and of course, recreating this relationship later in life. The person sees love and sees relationship through this rep mental representation, this internalization. They see love as a process of, I am weak and needy, and you are strong and safe. Research, Bornstein et al., 1986, found that dependent people described maternal interjects that lacked warmth. So it's kind of interesting that when they looked at 
um, you know, people with dependency, people with dependent personality disorder included, and asked them to describe their parents, they found that these individuals would describe their parents as being kind of cold, which is which is kind of interesting and, and lends itself to what I was saying. Now, this isn't all, all people with dependency, but when I was talking in Chapter 2 about causes, the parenting style can be very over-involved, very overprotective, right? So we would sometimes see that as, oh, that person must be very warm, but not necessarily. The, the parent can be cold while being overprotective. Uh, but they need to be warm enough such that the dependent person finds the parent to be a good place to go to when they feel like they're unsafe. Anyway, another study by Bornstein et al., 1988, dependent people have self-representation as being weak, submissive, and ineffectual. So some research does support the object relations point of view in terms of interjects and working models of self and other. Okay. So DSM, let's look at the DSM history here. And I want to caution people about even privileging the history of the DSM because lots of writing, most writing, vast, vast majority of writing on dependency exists outside the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual. So I just want people always to remember that. And I, I, I find that people tend to really privilege the DSM, but it's just one set of authors. I find that the description of dependency in the DSM is adequate, but it certainly doesn't uh, describe the, you know, just reading the DSM won't tell you what dependency is. All right, so let's go back to the very first DSM, 1952. This is DSM-1, uh, but it was just called DSM at the time, and it was not in this. Uh, dependent personality disorder was not included, but they did uh, talk about it, but it was under the category of passive-aggressive personality, passive-dependent type. And listen to my whole deep dive on passive-aggressive personality disorder. I actually kind of go into this. Um, so back then, they lumped passive-aggressive personality with dependency. And there's actually some wisdom to this, you know, in terms of my typology of dependency, I included passive-aggressiveness in there. And so to me, when I am assessing people like this, at least in my head, I don't really differentiate between dependent people and passive-aggressive people. Many dependent people are not passive-aggressive, and some passive-aggressive people are not necessarily terribly dependent, but, they're, but they seem to be in the same category, in the same way that I consider borderline and histrionic to kind of be in the same zone. You know, and we don't have blood tests to differentiate between these things. It's sometimes kind of a, a judgment call to differentiate between. So passive-aggressive personality, which incidentally is no longer included in the DSM, I, I find to be a similar concept to dependent personality disorder. So in DSM-1, 1952, they said that passive-aggressive personality, passive-dependent type, is characterized by helplessness, indecisiveness, and a tendency to cling to others as a dependent child to a supporting parent. So it's similar to the you know proto-elements of dependent personality disorder. DSM-2 in 1968, a number of years later, also, dependent personality disorder was still not included, but dependency in general was becoming less popular, and the passive dependent personality was actually removed, and it was included in a catch-all category of other personality disorders of, spe of specified types. So essentially, the, the, the construct of dependency became much less popular, 
and was just relegated to this catch-all uh, diagnosis of other personality disorders, which is interesting. Uh, DSM-3, 1980, more attention was given to dependency, and they actually gave it a label of dependent personality disorder. So it's the first time it's included in a DSM-1980, and it grew out of the passive-aggressive personality disorder diagnosis. There were three broad symptoms. One, passivity in interpersonal relationships. Two, a tendency to subordinate subordinate one's needs to others. And three, lack of self-confidence. So not super descriptive, but, you know, close. It, the diagnosis and the description, they emphasize submissiveness, tim- timidity, insecurity, immaturity, and willingness to put others' needs before their own. Seemingly, they were just describing two of the six subtypes that I talk about. They seemingly were really you know, focused on the childlike dependent and the compliant and eager dependent. And this at the time was criticized for being very vague. The, the, a lot of people criticized this, this version. DSM-3R, the re- revision 1987, there was a more descriptive version, and, but the lack of self-confidence symptom was dropped, which is interesting. I'm not sure why. And it was criticized for being similar to other personality disorders, which I don't really understand. And this has actually been a problem throughout the history of the DSM and, and the history of my field is that for whatever reason, there's, a, there's always a group of people that say, well, aren't you just describing borderlines or aren't you just describing like this sort of depression or something? And it's like, no, you don't <laughs> like – I think a problem with personality disorders is that you have to specialize in it to really feel it. Like you have to have, I don't know, maybe like 20 plus clients with these disorders to fully get what the experts are talking about. So it's the same with narcissistic personalities. Um, borderline's a little easier to understand because it's it can be so overt when you first treat it. So you maybe need five clients in that instance. But a lot of people have either not treated someone like this or they, they didn't know they were treating someone like this. They were just seeing sort of ancillary symptoms and didn't know what they were looking at. And so when they read the description, they're just like, I don't get it. It seems kind of like borderline. And it's like, no, if you experience – it's a similar thing that sometimes we'll talk about where people will confuse borderline and bipolar, which I find it just be – and Bob too – finds this to just be completely bizarre because borderline and bipolar are very, very different conditions. And the only suspicion I have is that these people just don't understand one or both of these conditions. So uh, just because you are trained, just because you have the capability of diagnosing, just because you think you know what's going on, in my mind, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you know. For example, I'll just use me for example. I, um, until probably 10 years ago, didn't really understand personality disorders all that well. I understood borderline pretty well because I treated enough people and had enough, I don't know, guidance and supervision and mentoring around it. But the other personality disorders, I, I could read the symptoms and I could maybe pass a test and I could, you know, talk the talk. But in terms of walking the walk, I probably wasn't that good at assessing for it, even though at that point I was 15 years into the profession. Now, hopefully back then I knew that, and I, I think I knew that, but, uh, but at the same time I was, I was authorized to diagnose people with that. So I think 
it's sort of like a Dunning-Kruger thing where it's important that clinicians understand that although they're authorized to diagnose and and make these judgment calls, they might not know enough to to really understand what they're looking at. And that's a hard decision to, to, that's hard to know. It's hard to know what you don't know. And it's hard to admit because you went through so many years of school and you've been practicing for 10, 15 years. You want to think like you're good at stuff. But, you know, this field is so complex. And as I always say, that's why I love this field because I'll, you know, I, <laughs> I sometimes will mention this, that one of the, one of the sad things about dying for me is I won't be able to do all the deep dives that I want to do. You know, I have a list of deep dives given to me by the listeners and also just developed by my own interests that it's impossible. I realized this a number of years ago. It, I, I won't live long enough to actually do all those deep dives. And uh, that's a bummer to me. But what that shows is that this field is so vast that you could literally spend your entire life uh, trying to attain all this knowledge deeply and only get like 3% down the road, uh, which I find to be fantastic and, you know, exhilarating. And because there's other fields where you feel like, yeah, I kind of figured it out. Anyway, let's go on to DSM-4. Uh, we have uh, 1994. This is my first DSM because I entered graduate school in 1995. Uh, dependent personality disorder was revised again. And this was to reduce the overlap with other personality disorders, particularly borderline. And it is very similar to what we have now in the DSM-5. DSM However, the criteria don't include the key component of dependent personality disorder, which is a self-perception of being powerless and incompetent. DSM-4 uh, revised in the year 2000, not much change. ICD-10 in 2004 they had the following criteria. It is characterized by at least four of the following. Encouraging or allowing others to make most of one's important life decisions. Subordination of one's own needs to those of others on whom one is dependent and undue compliance with their wishes. Unwillingness to make even reasonable demands on people one depends on. Feeling uncomfortable or helpless when alone. Preoccupation with fears of being abandoned by the person with whom one has a close relationship. Limited capacity to make everyday decisions without an excessive amount of advice and reassurance from others. So, you know, it, this is similar to DSM-5. Very, very, very similar. All right, let's go on to the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual in 2006. People with dependent personality disorder are described as being compliant in therapy, as likely to idealize the therapist, and likely to evoke the following countertransference. The therapist will feel, and this is my words, it's not their words. The therapist will feel drawn toward colluding with the client's dependency. They will uh, feel, they, they will see the client as being helpless like a child, and they will tell the client what to do. I'll get into more of that later. The central problematic belief with dependent personality disorder, according to the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual, is I am inadequate, needy, and impotent. The central problematic belief of other people, the working model of others for dependent personality disorder is others are powerful and I need them to care for me. So this really gets to the heart of the matter for me. So in the DSM, they don't talk about these schemas because you can't really measure them. But in the psychodynamic diagnostic manual, they do. So I just want to repeat this. So the, the, the working model of self 
generally speaking, is I am inadequate, I'm needy, and I'm impotent, meaning I don't have power. The working model of others is other people are powerful, and I 100% need them to take care of me. So that really gets to the heart of the matter. Okay, uh, 2013, DSM-5, I can't believe it was eight years ago. It feels like it was just yesterday. I'm still not used to the purple cover. Um, It was almost removed, dependent personality disorder. All the personality disorders were almost removed, but particularly dependent personality disorder. Or it was, uh, you know, they were thinking about revising the entire personality disorder system. So why was it all? Why was it almost removed? Well, they say it's not a cohesive disorder, which for decades people have been saying, which I don't understand. Uh, it just really just it just boggles the mind. When I treat people with dependent personality disorder, I'm like, yep, the you know Harry Stack Sullivan and to some extent Freud and Abraham in 1927 when they were describing they're describing the same people that I'm treating today. I can I can tell by their description, and this is a thing. So let's acknowledge it. Now, I have the luxury of not necessarily caring about what's in the DSM because I can certainly treat people and their conditions that don't exist. Most of life's ails do not exist in the DSM. You know, like relationship conflict, attachment insecurity is not in the DSM. So we have to understand that um, it's just because it's not in the DSM doesn't really mean crap. But it is nice when it's in there because it does emphasize it and it does provide research and you know just justification for medical necessity. But anyway, so I think the criteria are adequate in the DSM-5, like I've been saying. Okay, so the current leading researchers and authors, I just want to kind of give them a shout out. You might have heard me saying Bornstein a lot. Well, that's Robert Bornstein. He's a professor of psychology at Gettysburg College. And he is really the most, uh, I don't know, voracious researcher and writer on dependent personality. His seminal works are The Dependent Personality in 1993, Healthy Dependency in 2002, and The Dependent Patient in 2005. We also have Aaron Pincus. He's a professor of psychology at Penn State. Michael Gertman, professor of psychology at U of Wisconsin. Deborah Gardner and Edward Helms. So these people are, but mainly Robert Bornstein at Gettysburg College, are the main researchers and authors, independent personality disorder. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about why I am not a dependent, why I am, if anything, pathologically independent. But uh, because I thought, you know, you're patrons and I can be kind of honest with y'all. So when I was growing up, uh, my parents were not dominant. They were definitely firm. <laughs> it was the 70s. But they were not dominant, meaning they didn't enmesh over me. They didn't micromanage me. They didn't tell me how to think. They didn't you know, bark at me all the time. And my parents were attuned enough. They were warm, attentive, loving, and caring. And I was allowed to make mistakes. As I was saying, I think, in Chapter 2 regarding the parenting, I – would climb trees without supervision at the age of three and four. (laughs) No one was watching me. I would play with my friends all day without being monitored from the ages of like three or four until I was, you know, until, well, until I moved out at the age of 17. I, my parents just, I would just say, I'm going out, hanging out with my friends. And they was okay. I did my homework on my own from a very early age. My, you know, I was, I always sort of uh, was, 
weirded out by the occasional friend of mine that had parents that even knew what they were doing in their homework. Like I brought my homework uh, to home and, you know, there must have been times when I screwed up my own homework, right? But my parents didn't take over that process. And at the age of seven or eight, I just learned, huh, I need to learn how to do this on my own. My parents, and maybe my parents even helped me with that. They're just like, hey, you need to do this on your own. You're a big boy now. You can handle it. So with homework, with grades, I, I knew it was up to me. And I learned that I could handle it on my own. And it made me feel good. I would play sports without their help. You know, they wouldn't intervene. They wouldn't tell the coach to knock it off or anything. They, I'm sure there were times when they thought the coach might be over, you know, heavy-handed or something. I mean, sometimes my dad was literally the coach. But anyway, uh, they let me do things. They, uh, you know, they let me register for college courses by myself. They didn't micromanage that. They let me choose my own career. You know, there were conversations about it, but there was a consistent a method of parenting from a very early age that my parents said, you know, we're, we're, we're going to let him make his own mistakes. He's going to make mistakes and he always, and he frequently makes mistakes, but we're not going to take over. We're not going to overprotect him. He needs to learn from his own mistakes. And so that was another reason why I didn't develop uh, pathological dependency. Also, my parents forced me to take challenges even when I didn't want to. And this is kind of key so I'm going to give some examples of, of this. Uh, there's one particular example that I'll give in a second. But uh, smaller examples are like, well, actually, let me give the big example up front because it's the first one chronologically. The first example that popped into my head is as to why, uh, you know, it's an example of my parents' uh, approach to me is, and I remember this. I was four years old. We were visiting my all my, you know, because my, my parents are from Spokane, Washington. That, that's where they went to high school. That's where, that's where they were born. Or my, my mom was born in, uh, in Kansas and moved to Spokane. Anyway, point is, is all my ancestors are, are a lot of them for, from Spokane, Washington. It's, it's kind of far from Seattle. Anyway, we would go out there every summer to visit all the grandparents and the cousins and everything. And I remember we were so uh, – <laughs> Uh, it's getting late. So I'm, I'm giving you all this detail on Spokane and it literally has nothing to do with the story. Anyway, so we're, me and my older siblings, my older sister and my older brother, they're quite a bit older than me and my dad, and my mom, we were at the bottom of a hill and it was getting late and we were going to walk back to the car and it was a pretty steep hill and I, uh, was tired and I remember, I, I remember this in my head. I re, it's a vivid memory. I remember I, I just really could not make it up the hill. I'm like, oh, I don't want to, you know, you, anyone with young kids, you've seen kids do this where they just kind of flop. They're like, I don't want to, can you carry me? And that's what I did. I said, I don't, you know, can you carry me up the hill? And um, what happened was my parents made this a learning moment. They, they, I don't know what their decision was, but, and my parents remember this moment too. Maybe I could even ask them what was going on in their head. But what they did was they said, Kirk, we believe in you that you can make it up in the hill on your own. We're not going to carry you. So in this moment, they were kind of saying, they were saying a lot of things to me. They were saying, you can make it. We believe in you and you can do it. And we're not going to always be there 
to pick you up when you're tired. You're going to have to figure things out on your own. You're going to have to do things on your own sometimes, including walking up this hill. Now, they weren't saying you have to pay your bills on your own or you have to cook food on your own. They're just saying you're going to have to walk up this hill on your own and we believe in you. They didn't say, get up the hill, you piece of crap. What they did was, my mom, uh, I think, engineered this. My my mom and dad and my older brother and sister, they we all did a huddle. And they said, okay, Kirk, you know, you, you know let's, let's give Kirk our energy. He's going to be able to make it up the hill. And they gave me a pep talk. And we, you know, said break. And I shot up the hill as fast as anybody. And I beat everyone else to the top of the hill. So I went from, I can't make it. Will you please carry me to boom i'm at and and the reason why i remember this i think is because i beat everyone up to the top of the hill and i felt so accomplished you know because my older brother and sister were just were they were you know they're like six seven years older than me they were so much more stronger and better at me at everything than everything at everything of course my parents were better than me at everything and for me to win (laughs) and maybe they let me win but the point is is i I remember in that moment really learning this lesson of, okay, at one point I felt like I couldn't do it and I wanted someone to save me. But the whole time I had the capability to do it on my own and I needed a pep talk, fine. You know, they, they gave me mental and emotional energy, but I did it. I was the one that ran up that hill. I can do things. When people believe in me, I can do things. That was a huge lesson for me. Fast forward a little bit. I am trying to use ohashi, which is chopsticks for Americans, but we call them ohashi. And I didn't know how to use ohashi as a as a kid because, you know, they're hard. And my dad was a little embarrassed by that. So the next day he sits me down. I've told the story before. He dumps out what seemed to be hundreds of little buttons that my mom had in this jar. And and he said, when you pick up all the buttons and put them into the jar with your Ohashi, then you can go out and play. And the first hundred of buttons, it was very labor intensive, but by the 500 button, I was throwing them in. And ever since then, I've been very, very good at Ohashi to the point where I can pick up uh, the very, very soft tofu and miso soup with ohashi and not break it. And, you know, I'm very good with ohashi. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so in that moment, my dad said, even though I was quite young, I, I, I'm guessing I was seven years old-ish, and my dad said, I, you know, before you go outside, you know, you're going to pick up all these, and I'm not going to help you. My dad, I mean, he might have helped me a little bit with the form because there's a certain way you have to hold them in your hand. So he probably helped me a little bit. But I remember sitting there by myself. And what did my dad tell me? Well, what he told me was, I believe in you. And I'm going to give you a tough task. And life is hard sometimes. And good things come to those who work. But you're going to do the work. You are the one. And I believe in you. I'm not doing this because I think you're going to fail. I'm doing this because I think you're going to win. I think you're going to actually succeed at this. When I got my license, I was, uh, you know, I uh, when I was getting my driver's license, I my parents were, I don't know, busy 
And so they, they let me dr- do all the license things on my own. And they let me drive illegally to get my drive, you know, because you have to drive to the DMV to get your, to take your driver's license test. And obviously when you're driving to the DMV, you don't have your license yet, right? Well, they let me drive there on my own (laughs) and um, actually failed the first time, but they didn't micromanage, you know, the, the whole process of me getting my driver's license was I was left to my own devices. I was, you know, there's like, do it, you know, you're okay. And they didn't micromanage. They just said, you know, you'll figure it out. And, and I did. It wasn't easy. It was hard. It was, I remember several moments in that process. And I guess I wish I had someone that could have fixed it for me. But really, you know, I needed to figure it out. Every driver, everyone who learns how to drive, there's a, some point where you're just like, look, it's up to me. I, I got to figure this out. I can't have someone tell me what to do all the time. Another moment that I remember that my parents doing and this was, it seems like a small thing but I often talk about it because I, I remember it being a really big moment in how I saw myself and in terms of dependency and independency I was 16 years old and my parents came to me and they said you have to buy all of your sundries now you have to buy your shampoo and your soap and your contact solution and all that stuff this was revolutionary in my family like uh, for me to have to buy anything, you know, my, because my parents took care of everything, for me to have to buy my own soap, I, I thought, that's insane. Like, no. I, I remember I was pretty upset about it. I didn't like it. And I protested. I thought, this is kind of some bull crap because I have a job, but I work real part time for minimum wage. I don't, this is, this is a lot of money, you know, if five bucks for some pert plus, you know, that's going to set me back. I didn't like it, and I protested, but my parents said, nope, you're 16, you're old enough now, you're going to do it, and it's practice. And they, I'm sure, thought this is practice for the future. I mean, you know, it was probably 15 bucks a month for my parents, and I'm sure they could have swung that, but they were trying to prepare me. They didn't want me to be dependent on them. They wanted me to learn, and sometimes that means pushing your child to be independent in ways that they don't want to be, in ways that they might screw things up. I'm sure my parents thought, well, what if he just doesn't buy any shampoo and he just stops showering? Or what if he stops brushing his teeth and his teeth fall out? Like there are risks. There's always risks when you push a child in this way, age appropriately. But that's how you develop a child into an independent adult. And the last one I'll talk about is... And this is very much uh, on the cusp of my life becoming either dependent or independent. So it's, uh, I think I, w- I had already graduated or I was close to graduating from high school. And I was already accepted into the University of Washington. And I was thinking about, you know, my sister was in a sorority. At, actually, my mom was in a sorority as well. And my sister was actually in a sorority at the University of Washington, and uh, she was kind of my main mentor about this because I was going to the same college as she was. And I, anyway, so, so I'm at home, and, I, and the, the, they're, they're kind of pushing me to join a fraternity. And I'm thinking about it, and, and I'm like, oh, you know, I got it pretty good at home. <laughs> like, my mom cooks my dinners and she does my laundry. And so, you know, my parents hadn't really pushed me in these other ways. 
and I kind of like my bedroom and I like my neighborhood and, you know, going off to college and living in a fraternity, it's all kind of scary to me. And I know what my life is like. And I don't, you know, my parent, I, at the time, uh, I didn't live that far from university of Washington. It was like a half hour drive. And I just thought, you know what? I, I think I just, I think I'm thinking about just staying home, you know, and I'll save my parents money. They wouldn't have to pay for me to go to live in a fraternity, you know? And I came upstairs and I floated that idea to my family. I was just, and I thought they'd be like, yeah, sure. You know, whatever you want to do, kid, we love you. And okay, we can save money. And my, I remember my mom and my sister, they both said, no, you're moving out and you're joining a frat. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is an optional. This is not an option. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm being, I'm being kicked out of the house. I, it was the first moment when I thought, huh, is parenting difficult? <laughs> I remember it was the very first time I thought, because up until that point, you know, I, I think for a lot of healthy reasons, I had this idea that my mom was just an un, uh, I don't know, a bottomless pit of love and attention and, you know, the giving tree, if you will, <laughs> by Shel Silverstein. And at that moment, I, I realized, oh, my mom has a limit, and she's done with me. <laughs> she, she doesn't want to do my laundry anymore. She doesn't want to pick up after me anymore. She wants me out. She wants me to figure crap out on my own. And I, I was like, okay, message received, moving out. And what if they hadn't? What if my mom had said, okay, sure, you know? Or what if my mom had said something like, Great. We we didn't want you to move out anyway because we don't, you know, we don't believe that it's good for you to move out. You're too young. What trajectory would my life go on if life went down that road? I don't know. But it's just interesting to think about these little moments. Now, is this the only way to avoid dependency? No. But I'm just I'm telling you as a cuz I know the way I was parented and I know these little beats, these little nodes in my life that I learned one, I am competent. I learned two, I can do things on my own. I learned three, that my parents and my older siblings believed in me, that I could look to them when I was afraid. And if it was too much for me, they would, they would help me. But I also knew that if they were letting me do it, then I was probably okay. I, I knew that they believed I could make a mistake and it would be okay. And I would, maybe I could even make up for the mistake if I did make a mistake. I learned that the world was safe enough. You know, the world, believe me, I've, I had multiple concussions as a child from various different falls. One of them out of it. I didn't get a concussion from falling out of a tree. I actually just knocked the wind out of me. But, but I, you know, bad things happened, but I learned that that's okay. Bad crap happens. Sometimes the bully punches you in the face. Sometimes you fall out of a tree. Sometimes you get in a fight with your friend. Sometimes you get an F on a test. Sometimes, uh, you know, a relationship breakup happens or something. And, and yet I survived and I did it on my own. And my parents were there and I could talk to them for support, but I didn't need them. I, I could do it on my own. I could go to them when I needed them. But I didn't need them all the time. And those lessons are, you know, 
slowly learned on a daily basis from the time I was born, such that by the time I was 18 and I moved out, I felt like I could do this thing. And um, I'm okay. And I, I'm not in, you know, incompetent. I'm not needy. I, I don't need other people all the time. I can make it. I could do this thing, you know, given my 18-year-old mentality, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I thank my parents for, you know, doing that for me. Um, I also want to mention I didn't have any major negative events that are factors that are associated with developing dependency. Like there was no divorce. My parents are still married. Uh, they've been married for almost 60 years. Do I have that right? Yeah. They've been married for 58 years this June. <laughs> 58 years. So yeah, my parents, there's no, you know, divorce is a risk factor. I wasn't abused. There was no substance use at all. My parents never drank and never used drugs. There was, I mean, I mean, they would very rarely have like a alcoholic drink every now, like once every, I don't know, number of years or something. Anyway, uh, no major illness, no poverty, no major bullying incidents, no community violence, no major discrimination that I went through. I went through some obviously as an Asian, as a mixed person, but, but not a lot. And so, because of me and my fortune and my privilege, I also uh, wasn't tempted to develop any personality disorder or didn't need to develop any personality disorder in response to those difficulties, including dependent personality disorder. All right. So let's conclude with treatment. So in the literature, they will often talk about cognitive behavioral therapy as a solution and medication sometimes as a way of treating co-occurring conditions like anxiety or depression, antidepressants, sedatives, tranquilizers, this, this kind of thing. There are psychodynamic approaches. There are cognitive approaches. There are behavioral approaches. But for me, I'm just going to give you my, uh, I don't know, it's a psychodynamic attachment-based way of, of treating it. I find that the descriptions of the treatment for de dependent personality disorder are pretty lacking and uh, or at least they don't resonate with me anyway. So the first thing I will point out is that research shows that there's a better prognosis for dependent personality disorder than other personality disorders for some pretty obvious reasons is that the clients are very cooperative and compliant and they don't tend to drop out of therapy and they're less easily triggered. So when treating people with dependent personality disorder, we should consider that to have a better prognosis and maybe a faster time of treatment than other form, other uh, personality disorders. Okay. So the uh, countertransference is a very, with any personality disorder, there's always a ton of countertransference. And I could go on and on about this, but just some highlights is that through projective identification, the client will try to recreate the relationships that they've had in the past in the therapy office. They will, and there's a, there's, you know, variations of this depending on what type they are. Right. But a kind of classic presentation is that the person with dependency will ask and ask and ask for advice. They might even just flat out say, will you please tell me what to do in this situation? And they'll either comply and just say, yay, I now have a, a, another person that will tell me what to do, which of course isn't helpful. Or they will 
stubbornly defy you passive aggressively and resent you for having told you for having you told them what to do this is a this isn't always the case but with a lot of people with dependency uh unless a therapist really understands this this counter-transference and this transference process they can easily fall into this trap where the the client will sit down and they'll be talking about their life and they're like oh you know i don't know what to do and there's all these problems and and then the client sincerely says to the therapist, what do you think I should do? And a lot of therapists will know better than to just answer that question. They'll say, like, well, you know, what are you thinking? But eventually the client will break down the therapist either through different methods of asking or just repeating the question over and over again or a helplessness that the client gives off and a vibe sense to the therapist. And eventually the therapist breaks down and just starts flat out giving advice to the client saying, well, I think you should do this or maybe subtly like, well, if I were you, maybe this. And there are times when that is helpful as a therapist to give. But in the beginning of treatment with someone with dependency, what you're doing is you're colluding and you're you're giving in to the seduction of recreating their past relationships, one in which you, the therapist, are the caretaker and the dominant person, and the client is the submissive person who is helpless and needs to be told what to do and needs to be micromanaged. And so this can either result in the client just allowing the micromanagement to happen or, like I said, becoming passive-aggressively angry and stubborn and and hateful of the therapist. So it's in the same way that someone who suffers from borderline will, you know, the, the common phrase that they'll say is, get away from me, I need you, or what do they say? They say, you know, come here, get away. I can't, you know, there's a certain push and pull that you'll feel from people with borderline. You'll feel like you're you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You're damned if you if you move in and you're damned if you pull away. Well, with people with dependent personality disorder, the seduction, the ask of collusion is, please tell me what to do, but that will ruin my life. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. Like, tell me what to do and I will do it or I'll resent it, but either way, I'll stay the same, that kind of thing, you know. Um, Another seduction that will happen sometimes is to make the therapist feel very needed to manipulate the therapist into caretaking into caretaking and into being like a parent or a friend rather than a therapist Uh, sometimes with people with dependency i will feel pushed into being dominant or even hostile with them and this is actually really tricky is people with dependency either if I'm not giving in to certain transferences in the beginning or if they just present this way in a passive-aggressive way, they can sometimes uh, – I'll, I'll, I'll feel in session this anger. Cause, and I think I'm feeling their anger because, you know, they're suppressing all their anger. And like a common example would be a dependent client is telling me about her – divorce or her her marriage and how horrible it is and i'm over here thinking man your husband is abusive and horrible and this is just like why are you in this relationship and you know i'm just having a a kind of a normal human reaction to it and then the client will just slowly kind of open the door in a very subtle way 
to hearing my opinion. It'll be like, well, you know, and they won't ask outright. They'll, it'll just be real subtle. And I'll, I'll start hearing myself saying things like, wow, that's, are you sure you want to be in that? I won't say that, but I'll, because I would never say that, but it would be something along those lines. At least I'd be thinking those thoughts. And that's where countertransference begins is emotion. And then you start thinking things and you start doing things that, that are not helpful. And I, about midway or, you know, 40 minutes into the session, I actually feel angry. I feel really frustrated. And I'm, I'm really frustrated with the client. I'm really frustrated with their situation. I'm like, why? I just want to grab them and say, like, will you get your life together? Will you get a divorce? Or will you tell your boss to screw off? Like, because the, the dependent person is often when they come into our office, they are being exploited by other people. And it can make you as a therapist very upset. And then when you see your client not doing anything about it, you feel very compelled, or I do, to fix the problem and just yell at them and say, stop, you got to divorce. And of course, that's skipping the line. That's leapfrogging the process, right? What the client needs is for you to help them to shed their dependency so they can make their own choices on their own. If I just tell a client to get a divorce and we and I solve that problem for them and they do get a divorce, the client's problem of dependency is still very much intact. And in fact, it's reinforced by the fact that I that they now have another person that is caretaking for them, right? And another person that doesn't believe in them that they can do this on their own. So it's a very careful dance because clients might present to us as being in very abusive relationships. And where's the line? On one level, we want to advocate for them and help them understand that they're in an abusive relationship and that they deserve better. But on the other hand, we'd rather have them come to that conclusion on their own and then we would support them and we could believe in them that they that they're capable of coming up with that. But therapy takes a long time. Are we willing to wait three years for them to come to that conclusion on their own or do you know, it gets it gets real hairy real fast. But anyway, countertransference wise, uh, the dependent uh, there's a certain class of dependent people that I've treated before who are uh, who will make me feel you know quite hostile either at people in their life or even at them and that's another way that they'll seduce you into recreating the relationship is my cat wants to chime in is that they will make me feel so angry at them as a client that I will want to dominate them or reject them and that's similar to the way they were treated when they were young okay um, another countertransference that you will often feel is that um, you'll feel like they are indeed incompetent and weak. You'll you'll find yourself saying, "Oh my!" You know, it'll it'll be a felt sense of this client has no idea what they're doing. They're just completely aimless, and they don't know what to. They don't. You know, they'll never figure this out. Or or. This client is just so weak. Like, how come they can't stand up for themselves? Like, what's going on here? So, again, that's one, an observation of the client's schema, but it's also an inducement of dominance and of anger and maybe even abuse that they experienced when they were young. That's the dynamic. You know, like with the Michelle character that I talked about where uh, Michelle had the mom who was very enmeshed and, and dominant over her. Well, the mom, one, would uh, step in a lot, but would also see Michelle 
as incompetent and weak, right? You remember that whole narrative like, oh, there's Michelle again. She's she's making a mistake. She's always that's Michelle. She's always screwing things up. She's the child. She's immature. She she's the train wreck. She doesn't know what she's doing. And so even though I as a therapist don't have that narrative going into it, the client through their transference, it's subtle and it's subconscious, will seduce me into thinking that as well about them. I will think very similar thoughts about them that the mother thought about, you know, for the Michelle character, the, you know, the composite I put together. There's also a self-sabotaging behavior that might be present in dependent people that will try to evoke caretaking from me. So this is a client who might self-sabotage their life. You know, they might get into a bad relationship or have a bad thing happen at work or even get kicked out of their apartment or something as a way of devaluing themselves while trying to get me to take care of them. You know what I mean? Uh, Also, there's a, a tendency for people with dependency to idealize me. They'll see me as this perfect, all-knowing, awesome person. And that's a very seductive transference, right? Because most therapists want to feel helpful. They want to feel smart. They want to feel like they're useful. And dependent people really know how to make you feel like you're smart and that you know what you're doing. Because if they can get you to do that, then you, in contrast, feel not only that you're smart, but that but your client is not smart and needs your brilliance, right? So that's the seduction. They might even make you feel bad for having other therapists because they're trying to have you alter themselves and they can have romantic attractions similar to people with other personality disorders. All right, so how do you actually treat these people? Well, this is my, I don't know, very brief discussion. Whenever I get to this section in my deep dives, I'm always thinking, I'm going to have to explain the entirety of psychotherapy, and that is not going to be done in even, you know, 30 hours of podcasting. Also, therapy is something you cannot describe in words. You have to do it. When I teach people about trauma, for example, there's only so much that I can teach people about how to see trauma, how to assess it, how to treat it. They have to... They have to have a back and forth between talking with me, treating a client, coming back to me, treating, you know, there has to be that back and forth. So when I get to these sections, I think, well, you know, I'll do the best I can. And for clinicians out there, uh, you'll probably be be able to uh, read between the lines or fill in the blanks, fill in the, uh, you know, the in-between stuff because you're a good therapist and you know how to do all the different things. Anyway, so... The first thing, there, there are many things to do all at the same time. One is to work on insight. So this is exploring re- relational traumas, exploring schemas. Very important to explore schemas, however you see that, or relational traumas. Exploring childhood causes of the dependency, exploring romantic relationship patterns and family relationship patterns, work relationship patterns. That's probably the most important thing. It's like, let's look at how you relate to other people and the problems you, you run into, and how dependency plays a role in that. The second thing is corrective experiences, uh, which, of course, you, you knew I was going to talk about. So this is um, a, adjusting 
to the client's particular internalization. So every, everyone is different. Everyone with dependency that I've ever treated is different, and their internalizations and their schemas are particular to them. So how do we do this? Well, the first thing we want to do is believe in them. And I've been talking about this a lot in this deep dive. So as a therapist, I want to believe in the person. I want to believe that they can do it on their own while staying in contact. And that's maybe the overall corrective experience uh, guideline is to stay in contact, you know, unconditional positive regard while also believing that they can do it on their own. So an example of this is, you know, someone comes, a dependent personality disorder person comes to me and is like, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm just, I just, I, I just, all these bad things are happening in my relationship. And, you know, what do I say? What's, you know, what, what should I say, doc? You know what? And so in that moment, they're trying to induce in me this, uh, um, feeling that they're helpless and I care. And so I, I feel this suck into this vacuum space of, I must tell them what to do. I must save them. But I resist that because I know that that's counter-transference and I know it's projective identification. I know they're trying to suck me in to being dominant, even if it's not terribly dominant in the beginning, this is the initial steps. And so, uh, but I don't just pull away and go, you can do this on your own kid. I stay in contact and I say, wow, you're going through a lot. And and I'm really with them. You know, in my heart, I'm really with them. But I refrain from telling them what to do. And I ask questions like, how do you want to deal with it? You know, what are, what do you, how do you feel about it? What do you want to do about it? And if they keep kind of giving these impressions, like, I don't know, like, can't you just tell me? Or if they give these vibes that... They're just kind of flopping and they just really need someone to help them, which is usually more common. It's usually more subtle. Then again, I resist and I, I just stay in that space. For dependent for people with dependent personality disorder, there's a chance that they've never been given that experience where they are stressed out and they're reaching out for help and the other person refrains from f- trying to solve the problem for them. That is the central corrective experience. There are many people with dependence personality disorder who have, they've literally never experienced that before. It's similar to like a borderline uh, treatment protocol for corrective experiences where the person with borderline will feel hurt by something and they might come out a little hostile with the therapist and say like, I didn't like that thing you said. For these people with borderline, there's a chance that they've never been apologized to, or they've never been allowed to just vent how they feel about something without the other person arguing. And so the corrective experience is, wow, I hear you. And I, you know, I'm sorry, tell me more. How'd that make you feel? Wow. You know, I, I'm so sorry that I did that last time. That is the corrective experience to the borderline person to the dependent person is as they crumble into dependency and incompetency, you resist the urge to solve the problem for them. And in that space, they stretch. They're like, wait, so he's not telling me what to do. So does this mean I have to figure out? Now, often what they'll do is they'll find another person to tell them what to do. But at least for the hour of session uh, of the session, they will, they'll have this space where they're like, well, he's not, wait, how come I'm not being told what to do? Usually by this point, someone is telling me what to do. What is going on here? 
The other thing is, is that, you know, he's, he's asking me what I want to do. No one ever asks me that because, you know, we all know that I'm incompetent. But if he's asking me, what do I want to do? Then that sort of implies he believes that I know what's best. That's a complete mind screw. I've, I've never had anyone treat me as if I know what's best. Everyone always just gives me advice. What's going on here? And so there's all these messages, right? And then at some point, let's say the client makes a choice and says, I'm going to do this. And then you as a therapist, you provide a corrective experience by believing in them. Even though you might believe that the choice might be not great, you're like, you made a choice. Good for you. You're old enough and smart enough. I trust you that not only is this what's best for you, uh, or if it ends up being what's not best for you, I believe in you that you can pick up the pieces of what falls apart. You know, I believe that you're, uh, you're competent and resilient and you can do this. You're, you're smart enough, you're good enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. Um, also, letting them have their own thoughts. That's very important is when a, when a dependent person, not all dependent people, but many dependent people will uh, kind of seduce the therapist into even dominating their thoughts. So an example of this would be a dependent person. And remember, the central schema is incompetence. So the, the, the client might uh, come up with an idea that will seem very incompetent to you as a therapist. You'll just be like, whoa, like the client might say, yeah, so, you know, I'm, I was just thinking about like moving to like Fiji and becoming a surfer. Okay. So one, that's an immature thing to say, a childlike thing to say. I mean, unless it's legitimately possible, but in the way I phrased it. And you as a therapist, you might be like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> that's impulsive. Uh, do you, you probably don't have the money to move to Fiji. I'm pretty sure that's not really what you want. And so typically what they will seduce others into doing is to say, whoa, 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 why are you talking about going to Fiji? I mean, that's kind of impulsive. And you'll have that urge because that's the that's the seduction. That's the recreation. That's the transference, countertransference. And you resist. But you got to stay in contact. You can't just like ignore it and go like, well, do what you want. So you have to stay in contact. You'd be like, okay, interesting. So you you had that idea. That's when you and a very frequent question I'll ask is something along the lines, okay, when you think about that, when you think about that option, well, how do you feel? It's always back to them. How do you feel? What do you think about that? What do you want? What are your needs? Because that was what was denied to them throughout their entire life, particularly when they were young. They were never really given space of, this is what I want. They were never given space of, this is how I think. Now, some of it was from abusive parenting, but some of it was anxious parenting. Because remember, when you have an anxious parent, the child subtly and not so subtly learns, they have to adapt their thinking to the parent's thinking because they don't want their parent to be scared. When a parent, when a child sees a scared parent, it, ter- it, it terrifies them 10 times over because for the child, they're scared already. But if they see their parent is afraid, well, now the child is extremely unsafe, right? Because the child depends on that parent for everything. And the child is quite scared anyway. The other thing you want to do, corrective experience-wise, is to reward independence. So 
the client decides to do something independently, makes that choice, even if it's a, a total screw up of a of a execution of that choice, you still want to socially reward it by saying, "Great job, you did it." You know, you did something on your own. No one. No one told you what to do and you did it. Good for you. So you're not focusing on the outcome. You're focusing on the the outcome that they did it, you know, anyway, right? Also, encouraging them to express their anger. Very, very important for almost every person with dependent personality disorder. I've never seen this not be a major issue. So this can take a long time, but eventually through exploration and questions and so you know, where's the anger in there? How does that make you feel angry? Uh, when were you angry last time? I think I might feel angry in a situation like that. Do you feel angry? Not only intellectual anger, but, you know, actual expressions of anger where the client is like, you know, yes, I'm so angry at that. Very important. And a very uh, easy thing to do is to allow them to be angry at me because we can work actually in the session and I can give them a corrective experience for not only encouraging their anger, but also for receiving their anger and not punishing them. Cause that is a very frequent experience for people with dependency is that when they got angry as a two year old, they were punished or they weren't heard. Also you want to set up rewards for independence in their outside life. So for example, you help them to be assertive with their boss and you know they they go out into the world and and they're assertive and it you know it it goes okay it doesn't go terribly it doesn't go terribly well but it doesn't go terribly bad but in that moment even though it didn't go terribly well they were rewarded because they learned wait so i can be assertive and the world doesn't fall apart very important, very revelatory to clients. Uh, I've seen that happen a lot with dependent clients is when they they take those steps of assertiveness and they're like, I've literally never done that before. I've never said no to anyone, that kind of thing. We want to change a model of the self. We want to change a model of other people. We want them to learn that we can be trusted, that we care about their feelings, we care about their needs, we care about their wants and that we believe in them. These are very important. And as they absorb that from me, then they can start to generalize that to other people. All right, so that's number two is corrective experiences. Number three is counter-transference management. Um, I've, been, I've talked about that enough. I don't need to repeat it. Number four is the development of self. So I've talked about this a little bit. I frequently talk about it. So this is a lot of questions. The person with the person with any precise order, but particularly for dependency, it's very important. Lots of questions. What do you think? What do you want? And know that in the beginning, depending on the degree of dependency, the client might not have any good answers to that. I've worked with clients for years before they can actually answer that question. What do I want? What do I feel? What do I need? So these this development of the self development of connection to the self that they can stay close to me while also exploring on their own and that's where you know the secure base comes in whereas it's emulative of when they were two years old and they weren't given that space or they're for whatever reason the circumstances were such that the two three four year old was not able to venture out and have things go well in therapy, they're talking to me and they're they're sort of venturing off into thought areas and they're looking at me to see 
if they're safe. And I'll say, you're safe. You're good. Even if I don't agree with what they're saying, even if I think what they're exploring cognitively is dangerous or strange or something or unappealing to me. And they might even purposely do that to try to get me to gain dominance over them. But I don't do that because they're exploring on their own. That's the key. It, you know, this is, and this is the getting back to countertransference. This is the, the key mode you have to be in as a therapist is do not focus on what they are doing or, or what they're deciding, but that they are deciding something at all. You know, don't focus on what they're feeling or how they're interpreting the world, but that they're interpreting it on their own at all. That's what you need to focus on is the process, not the content, right? The fact that the client is thinking on their own, that's the point. doesn't matter what they're th- – I mean, unless the client is thinking, I want to go shoot up a mall or something, obviously. But, but it's important to focus on the process. You're trying to create a corrective experience. You're not trying to tell them how to think or what to do, right? Um, and the key here is – Lots of questions. Who am I? What do I want? And and getting other people to ask them. So getting maybe their spouse to ask them occasionally, like, what do you need? What would you like? That kind of thing. And again, this takes a long, long time. And some, some very interesting things will emerge too. So as people get in connection with themselves, possibly for the very first time, they might learn some very unsettling things about themselves because they might have been living a life that was dependent on what someone else wanted them to do this whole time. So let, let me give a you know a fictional scenario. Well, let me talk about like uh, with with uh, let's who do I want to check here? Let's 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 do um, Aiden. So Aiden grew up with the dominant mom and a, a sort of aggressive dad. And let's and he you know he always kind of had these low paying jobs. He had no ambition. And then let's say <laughs> through therapy he gets in connection with himself. And, you know, I ask him, so what do you want to do with your career? You know, sky's the limit. Whatever you want, you know, don't worry about the consequences. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks. Just think, you know, what what would you like to do? And he's, you know, over the span of a couple years, eventually he says something like, well, you know, I always wanted to be a concert pianist or something. And and then very quickly he clamps down on you. But well, you know, it's ridiculous because, uh, you know, it's really stupid to think I'd be a concert pianist. I mean, you know, it just takes years and years and years to, to do that sort of thing. You know, instantly clamping down in the way that their parents would have clamped down on them. And then, okay, we give that some space. And then over time, they're, you know, they keep exploring. And eventually maybe he says something like, well, I've always wanted to do something that was creative. You know, I always wanted to do a job that was creative, maybe something with music. I don't know, just something creative. And then suddenly it hits him that he's like, but wait, I'm like 45 years old now. And I've been slowly building this career as a, you know, whatever it is that he's doing, like accountant. And I've been wasting my entire life. So, that's what can happen. Or uh, another person or Aiden himself might say something like, as I get to know myself better, I'm not sure if I even want to be married to the person I'm married to because I I never even ask the question, do I really want to be with this person? Because I never even knew I could ask myself that question. I never knew that was an option. 
And so it can be very scary to people as they get, as they suddenly see who they are deep down, as it as it becomes revealed to them. There are some pretty heavy implications from that. Like, whoa, you mean I've never want I've been living a lie? It can be really distressing. And there's a temptation to go back to ignorance is bliss place, right? Okay. So the fifth major tenant of the treatment that I recommend is assertiveness training, you know, with others, with me. And this is harder than it seems. You could go through various different YouTube videos about assertiveness training. I've worked with clients who have dependency or other personality disorders for years on on assertiveness. It's very, very hard. Because with someone with dependency, again, they don't value the self. They don't even know what they want. They desperately want to please others. They're terrified of being in a space of debate or, you know, the contemplation of saying no to someone to, to not comply and to not be accommodating to someone is just like, you know, a terribly, terribly unsafe, dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place that they've never been. You know, it's like going up to a three-year-old and saying like, I want you to drive that car and, and drive to a, wherever you want to and, buy what you want and choose a career. You know, a three-year-old to be like, oh my God, what do I do? I mean, just asking a three-year-old to order dinner at a restaurant for a lot of three-year-olds can be hard. You know, it's too much pressure. Well, you retain that fear of independence into your adulthood when you have dependent personality disorder. All right. I think that about does it. I think that's a grand total of three hours three chapters of two hours each. So it's been quite a journey. I've been recording this episode over a number of days. I've been prepping this thing for uh, months and months. I didn't think it would take this long, but it was but it was good. I was able to really dive into the disorder and what what I really really appreciated by this prep was the development of the five main possible schemas, and the six subtypes. So I want to go over that again. So again, you have the separation anxiety subtype. This is someone who is lonely unless they're near supportive. So, you know, they're just, they're, they're terrified of being away from their, from their, you know, dependent on person. You know, they're, they're anxious and they're, you know, they're, they feel vulnerable. They, they feel vulnerable to abandonment. They feel vulnerable to being alone then we have the enmeshed dependent. This person wants to give up their identity. They just they want to merge with another person. They feel only safe when they are completely engulfed by someone else's personality, a dominant person. The third is the childlike dependent. This is, you know, self-evident. The fourth is the compliant and eager dependent. This is a, you know, very eager, very compliant, very accommodating, very agreeable, very gracious. The fifth is the life avoidant dependent, the person who will, at least on the surface, be very untroubled by the fact that they're avoiding life in general, and they seek a very limited, easy life, one that uh, is probably dependent on someone else, but also extremely low risk, you know, just complete lack of independence. And the sixth type is the passive-aggressive dependent. This person is overtly nice, low self-esteem, and is compliant kind of on the surface, but secretly rageful, quietly stubborn, and a lot of hidden hostility. And we learned that 
individuals usually share more than one of these types. You know, Aiden, for example, had the enmeshed and the childlike. Michelle had the childlike, life-avoidant, enmeshed, passive-aggressive. And Tammy had the compliant and eager and the passive-aggressive type. And we also talked about the schemas. The five main schemas are, I am incompetent. The world is dangerous. I must stay close to my loved ones or else. I must please others. And bad things will always happen. The main schemas are, I am incompetent and I must please others. And the others are possible are the world is dangerous. I must stay close to my loved ones, you know, enmeshment and bad things will always happen. And we understand that the primary causes are parenting in which the parenting is either overprotective, overinvolved and or overcontrolling. And there are a lot of paths to this. Some are very obvious where you have a parent that anyone would describe as, wow, that's a very dominant, overprotective, over-controlling parent. But you can have other parents that are much more subtle in the way that they are overprotective, again, due to anxiety, due to things that are happening, due to the child having some sort of disability or an illness or something. So there's a lot of paths to this developing. And remember that there's a spectrum. You have people at the full-blown disorder, and you have people that are on the spectrum somewhere, and it, and it can cause problems for them. So as I said, I think at the end of chapter one, I would love your stories. As I've been talking about this, I would love to hear what I talked about and how it relates to you, what type, what schemas, what you might relate it, you could relate to either for yourself or someone else. That will help me. That will help me to understand and refine my understanding of this, which um, I always appreciate. And then, you know, I might share that with everyone else. And if you want to email me, you want to use the link below or you want to go to psychologyinseattle.com, click on the contact page and email me. And I guess um, conversely, if you are not dependent, maybe talking about what your early life experiences you went through that helped you to become independent, you know, like the, the experiences that I talked about. Getting up that hill – uh, I feel like uh, singing uh, Kate Bush. You know, running up that hill. Da, 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 da. Uh, okay, it's late. <laughs> I'm meandering. My, my cat wants to chime in. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.